Hello, welcome to our pod abroad. We are your co-hosts Tadashi and Alec. In this episode, we want to talk about academic elitism, how much it matters in your career development, how much it affects our lives, and we want to we want to talk about pros and cons about it. So let's let's go. So the reason that I got interested in topic academic elitism is when I look at the composition of um, top Supreme Courts in various countries, they have very little diversity in terms of their academic history. So if you look at the U.S. Supreme Court, um, nine of eight of the nine justices uh, went to either Harvard or Yale. If you look at British Supreme Court justices, um, all of them actually went to either Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, if you look at French Supreme Court justices, all but one went to uh, Sciences Po and Ena. That's that. Those are top French schools. So we are seeing a pattern here that uh, Supreme. This is true in most industries, but especially in the legal industry. Um, that that these jobs are highly concentrated in top schools, and I'm concerned about this for uh, various reasons. But among among this is that people who go to those top schools tend to come from very, you know, wealthy, very privileged, and also in terms of geographic areas. If you go to Harvard or Yale, you're probably from the East Coast. Um, if you are from the West Coast and you are really smart, you probably go to Stanford or UC Berkeley or something. So, you know, in terms of geography, in terms of their background, they're very, very um, limited and they don't really have a lot of diversity in terms of their, you know, upbringing or their uh, career development or their uh, academic history. And most of us didn't go to Harvard or Oxford or Sciences Po. And these very narrow sets of people who have really identical uh, history are making the most important legal decisions. And I think that has a significant implications on our lives. And I'm not sure if it's really good that these people come from these very narrow sets of um, backgrounds. What do you think, Alec? All right, so let me, let me say this first. One of our uh, beloved listeners called us the modest man podcast and i actually love that because it, it shows exactly what we're trying to do which is we're trying to argue on on a little bit on both sides and try to find some middle ground so i, I suppose that means modest even if we don't believe it ourselves so today in this podcast tadashi i am going to argue against you and mm-hmm. say that the model that we have currently today with mm-hmm. the whole ivy league schools um is working pretty well, and and actually, it's it's less of an impact on politics that you might think. Oh, uh, so you're taking the elitist stance? Yeah, yeah, and and also because you know I I paid a lot of money for my American uh, education, so I have to defend it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so yes, I'm gonna defend the um the the Ivy Leagues. I didn't go to an Ivy League, uh, but I still paid a lot of money for my education. Um, and actually, what I would say is that. You know, we think of these now, first of all, right off the bat, 
uh, the, the Ivy Leagues should do more to incorporate a my, more diverse class. Um, that, that's absolutely true. You know, at least historically, it was all white males pretty much. Um, I, th I think they're doing, I think they're beginning to start uh, diversifying a bit. I, ha I have seen in the news, you know, big scholarship winners going in and, and I haven't looked at the, the class diversities um, yet, but it, but it seems like they're at least moving in the right direction, you know, um, in that. But, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that these schools still do cost a lot, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that they have to perform really well on tests and, 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 and in schools, it's that uh, they have to have a lot of money as well. Um, on the other hand, you know, lots of foreigners come in and, and many people oppose lots of foreigners studying at, at Harvard and Yale. Um, but actually, you know, if you think about all of the international politicians who studied at Harvard and Yale and all the, the Ivy League colleges, it's an amazing percentage. Um, so we are educating the, the world's leaders. And, and I think it's, it's actually sort of good that they're all coming from a, a singular place. Okay, so um, I want to point out several things uh, that leads to this, um, you know, Harvard or Yale or these narrow sets of schools, that top schools, um, not being diverse is, well, first, you know, there is a diversity of, for example, like ethnicity or nationality, right? But, you know, on these metrics, um, actually, those, these top schools are attracting top students from all over the world. Um, but if you look at the economic background, they're quite limited, right? Because um, <clears throat> what, like, do you need to get a top, you know, uh, scores on uh, entrance exams? Um, what, you know, or, or GPAs, you know, you probably, you probably go to really, you know, top, top high schools, private, very expensive private boarding schools, maybe high schools. Um, maybe you have a tutor and um, that can really help you pump up the scores. On the other hand, uh, if both of your parents are working and they're doing, you know, babysitting to make, make ends meet, you're, you don't really have the time to practice these um, schools test. So I want to talk about a bit about my experience. So I didn't really go to a top university here in Japan, but I did go to a place uh, that was expensive and also had a lot of, um, um, how to say, people who graduated from relatively good high schools. Most of my friends went to private high schools, um, expensive ones, and most of them were really rich. Um, and, you know, it kind of makes sense that my, my school had very generous scholarships. But again, like if you like people who can attend those schools are those who could have afforded their, you know, uh, to spend most of their childhood, you know, studying and preparing for entrance exams, you know, uh, taking good grades and not worry about um, if I can eat tomorrow. Will I? Um, will my parents get deported? Right? Those, those things. Mm -hmm. So it's significantly harder for um, people from less fortunate backgrounds to attend those top schools. And I think you did. You take GMAT? Yes, I did. Right. Um, I took a GRE for uh, uh, attending graduate school, and like it's just a standard test. 
So like, if you know how to solve it, if you can practice it enough, I think anyone can get a really good score, but you know, it's expensive. It costs like $300. Um, you need time to prep. You maybe you may want to buy some prep kit or something. Um, so if you can't afford those, then, then you're out of luck. Well, that's, that's all true. But on the other hand, I think it's important to have some sort of hierarchy in your education system, not of students, but of schools, right? So uh-huh. you need to have in your mind, what are the top schools and what are the, the medium tier schools and the lower tier schools? And because it's a sense of motivation. And, you know, as we know, we, we went to La Sorbonne, uh, which in France is not as highly regarded as it is in, in the rest of the world. You know, when I say that we went to Sorbonne in the US, they think it's like Harvard, but of course it's not. If you're in France, you wanna to go to the Grand Ecoles. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's important that the, there remains this sort of perception that Harvard and Yale and Columbia are, are the top schools and that they remain um, very difficult to get into. But the thing is, like, have you seen the the recent um, admission standards for these schools? Mm-hmm. A few of our friends tried to get into some top schools in the U.S. And it, it's incredible. Not only do they have perfect scores, but they do extracurriculars. And they, they're, they're basically all little Mother Teresas and, and <laughs> Nelson Mandela's. Like, the, the standards to get into these schools are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think... You know, there's certainly no lack of students trying to get into these schools because they are perceived to be the top. Um, so maybe we need a better system of 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 finding top students and and understanding uh, what makes them so special. Because I I still believe that there needs to be special schools for very intelligent people, and they are the the top tier students and the top tier schools. Um, so, um, I'm not necessarily opposed to having some form of hierarchy, uh, but I'm not sure what we have uh, right now is a very good way of selecting students. So, you know, Harvard and Yale and like most schools select students based on GPA and standardized tests, right? right. But there are like so many places at Harvard and Yale, like there are more students who score like perfect or really high, you know, above 95 percentile in these, you know, standard tests or GPAs, right? And um, those people, like, don't get in, right? Some of them get rejected, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some of them get rejected from Harvard. Some of them get rejected from Cornell. Some of them get rejected to, um, I don't know, like somewhere. Um, So... Like, you know, then, you know, you, I guess you start to see extracurricular activities, but again, like these things tend to skew for the wealthy. And um, I think a few years ago, there was a huge scandal where uh, some rich parents tried to um, kind of, you know, defraud schools and like scheme their their, uh, students into elite schools. Um, I think one of the famous famous actress, I think, try to, you know, pretend that her daughter was a talented boat, boat rower or something. Yes. So like yes. rowing club or something, which is weird. But again, like these things are rich people stuff. And so rich people have, so if you just, you know, let's say you're poor, right? But you're really smart. 
you know, you manage to get perfect score on SAT, you get, you manage to get perfect score on GPA, but then you don't have the extracurricular activities because you had to work at McDonald's. You're screwed. Um, so, you know, like, and like, there is no really difference between like getting, um, like 99 percentile score and 95 percentile score. So, um, I want to tell my story. Uh, so there is a, there's something called GRE. This is a graduate record exam. It's like the SAT, uh, for grad school. And there are several sections. Um, top beat, the highest score is 170. The lowest is, I think, 130. When I took the GRE for the first time, my math score was 149, which is very bad. But it was because I wasn't used to the um, like English words for math. I took I learned uh, math in Japanese. So I, I tried to memorize some English words. I took it again. It was 159. And then uh, I guess I got to take it again. I took it again. It was 167. Like, you know, it took like six months like um, of this time span. And I didn't really get smart, right? Like in six months. It's just that my score got from 149 to 167. And so standardized tests are, or GPAs are not necessarily a good measure of how smart you are. It just means that you know how to do things. Uh, and I'm not sure it really measures how good you are. So for example, like I would suggest, um, you know, like Harvard having some like minimal standards for standard tested GPA. So you, let's say you have to be at least, I don't know, 3.5. You must get at least, I don't know, 1400 or I don't know the highest for her SAT, but let's say 1400, 1300 or something, some kind of minimum standard. But above that, they can select at random, you know, or above that they can select um, where they, um, so that, you know, each geography is represented, uh, you know, like maybe you take like X percent from California, you may take X percent from New York, or you may take X percent from, you know, China, India, uh, France, Britain, um, because among those students who take really high scores, there isn't really a lot of difference. Like maybe I think I, if I, you know, studied, if I practiced more and like I took the exam again, maybe I could have taken like perfect score on GRE, but that doesn't really mean that I'm smart or that I got smarter. It just means that I practice more for GRE. So these things, I'm not sure does makes, you know, measures a lot of stuff. Now, um, where, you know, even though Sorbonne isn't really like the Harvard of France, uh, at Sorbonne, we had a lot of really smart uh, classmates, those who uh, graduated from top universities in their respective countries. And like, they were really smart. And um, Alec, uh, I think you went to a state school. I went to a very uh, normal university in Japan. We, you know, um, by no means I went to a top school, but like, I didn't think that I was significantly dumber than my class classmates. So, you know, I, I don't think these things matter that much. Speak for yourself. I thought I thought I was significantly dumber than the rest of our classmates. <laughs> okay, so so what we're talking about here is basically quotas, right? In order to determine uh, class diversity and class size. Mm -hmm. um, as far as far as I know, Harvard doesn't have any quotas as of yet, but I know it is being discussed. Mm. Um, you know, it it is interesting because you know they do have minimum GPAs and test mm. scores and and whatever. It's just that. As you as you said, when you get up to those higher level things, yeah. um, 
when you get up to those higher levels of, of test scores, um, the, the population of students at that level is not diverse. Yeah. But then you have the argument of should yeah. we, you shouldn't, you know, people say that you shouldn't lower your academic standards in order to include more, more diversity. That doesn't really uh, bode very well. So, you know, we're, we're having the, the typical uh, debate of, of quotas, which is that um, do you just wait for um, people to, to um, establish themselves and then for more diversity? Because I, I think in the long run, um, you will eventually get a more diverse group of students achieving those academic levels. Or, but I'm not sure, like, even those, like, you know, even if it's through, true for ethnic groups, I'm not sure if it's true for, like, um, uh, income groups. Like, if you, you know, I'm not sure, for example, like, um, a lot of, like, poor kids will go to Harvard. Yeah. Right? And, for example, maybe Harvard, like, let's say, this is, you know, for the sake of the argument, right? I'm not saying that this is the best idea. But, for example, let's say that, you know, Above, say, 3.5 GPA, above, you know, 1400 SAT or something, uh, Harvard doesn't look at anything. They just look at your, you know, family household income, and they get, let's say, you know, 20% kids who are from household making less than $20,000 or earn something like these, like, income quota system. You know, I'm I'm just, like, spitballing here. Um, But what I'm saying is, like, again, I think you you would understand, but, like, if you if there are like two students and one of them has has 3.9 GPA and one of them has 3.7 GPA, can you say that the one with the 3.9 GPA is smarter? I'm not sure about that. No, but but that's what our whole education system is based on. Uh, well, we, you know, so far we haven't really deviated from that for for a very long time right yeah but like again like you know i i think it's reasonable to have some like some kind of standard like a minimum standard but um you know harvard can set a higher standard right but like at some point you know you need to look you know like like there there is a reason like again like if if these students let's say maybe like you know went to different high schools that had maybe stricter grade st- grading standards, maybe the GPA would have been switched, right? You know, let's right. say someone got, you know, 60, 1600 on SAT and the other person got 1580 on SAT. If they took yeah. SAT um, the other day, maybe the, the score would be different, right? Because these things are very, you know, not concrete. It depends right. on the day, it depends on the mood, it depends on, you know, which way you wake up on the bed. Um, and it's not a very good measurement of how, um, successful you are now. Like, I think having some standard is fine, but like having this like very strict hierarchical system, I'm not sure is the good idea. Yeah. I mean, this is not just an issue in academics. It's an issue in the workplace as well. Mm -hmm. And, and pretty much everywhere, um, because you know when when, and and there are plenty of people that reach that that higher level, uh, and, but then it comes down to in the end a human making a choice, mm. this person or that person, and and it's been shown that, um, you know they're going to choose people like them mm-hmm. or, or 
who traditionally seem a, 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 who seem better for the position mm-hmm. um, and, and not so much. And so we're saying like without like a quota or without some way of removing, I guess, the, the human selector at mm-hmm. the end of the process uh, that, that the Ivy Leagues are never going to get that diverse. Yeah. Um, um, and again, like, you know, these people tend to like occupy, you know, top places in society. And I think it matters to have some kind of, you know, different opinions. Like, for example, you know, like if there was a Supreme Court justice who, you know, grew up uh, in a single family, single parent household, you know, um, you know, who had to work for McDonald's to make some, some money here and there who went to state school, who went to state law school, and then go on to, you know, like become a Supreme Court justice, I think that would have a very significant, very significant impact on the decision that the court handles. Yes. I have a question for you. Why are we talking about, you know, diversity at the education level? And, and why don't we discuss, like, say, diversity in the, since this is the political podcast, in, in, in Congress, for example. Mm-hmm. What if there was a quota that said the the ethnic makeup of Congress must equate to the ethnic makeup or ethnic racial, whatever diversity uh, makeup of the United States? So, so for example, like when at it least, comes to Congress, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, um, I think that's impossible. Well, first, um, Congress is uh, being elected by uh, voters and voters have their own preferences. For example, um, I think, you know, if, if there was less gerrymandering, if there was, if, you know, if things were more equal, probably there would be more diversity in Congress. But again, um, these co- Congress is kind of based on how people decide to, how people vote that they want to be re- represented. And it's, it's not, it, I, I would say it's very different because the academic selection is very arbitrary and, you know, political representations kind of are, but there is the fundamentals of the demo- of democracy that's at stake, right? For example, like if there were two uh, politicians and one of them happens to kind of fit the diversity quota or ethnic quota or something, the other person did, does not. But if voters chose the other person, are we going to force the uh, you know person who meets the quota? That that would be un- un- undemocratic. Um, I want to talk a bit about uh, the legal uh, field because I think this is the field where we see the most extreme examples of academic elitism. So if you look at the business field, yes, we have. We see a lot of elitism, but like, let's, you know, let's look at Steve Jobs. Like he went to no name university. He dropped out. He went on to like found a very good, you know, a very the most famous company in the world. Um, what's his name? Uh, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella or something. Yes. Um, according to our Indian friend, uh, like he went to an obscure university in India. He went to some state school in Wisconsin or Minnesota or someplace. And then he's the CEO of Microsoft. So in business, so in, in business, we see more uh, diversity in terms of background, right? Even if you didn't graduate from Harvard or Yale or Stanford, you can, you know, become the CEO of a company. 
in politics, we see that as well. Like Joe Biden went to University of Delaware. Kamala Harris went to Harvard University. They're not Harvard and Yale's, right? Um, and in fact, I think Donald Trump went to University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school. And like, would you say that because Trump went to University of Pennsylvania, he was a better president than Joe Biden who went to a state school? No. I mean, I assume our podcast listeners uh, would say no. And I'm saying no. Um, I think there are past president. I think Lyndon Bates Johnson went to Texas Teachers College, uh, South Texas Teachers College or something, some obscure university. Uh, no one remembers. But he was uh, just as good president as, you know, anyone else who went to like really top schools. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's always these Steve Jobs examples, but let's bring up Satya Nadella. Uh uh Nadella again you know he he went to a school in India and then he went to Wisconsin very very true but then he went to get his MBA at Chicago Booth mm-hmm. uh school of business oh, really? which is one of the elite schools so but I would argue is isn't this an evidence isn't this evidence that the school system kind of works at weeding out the most intelligent people so he was obviously I mean he is obviously a very smart person okay and, and he perhaps received a lot of luck, but I think a lot uh, people everywhere in every field receive a lot of luck in their career journeys. Um, and he made it into the U.S. and he got into some school and, and, and Wisconsin, we shouldn't just Wisconsin, and then, and then made it into Chicago Booth and then went to Microsoft. And as far as I can tell, he's a perfect example of, of someone who worked his way up through the ranks and and eventually got to the top job at at Microsoft. I would question if like, you know, like if he the academic selection at Chicago Booth uh, made him smarter or made him the person who he is right now. Because I think like these schools kind of work as a branding. Like as you said before that, you know, if you tell someone that you went to Sorbonne, it's like, oh, you went to La Sorbonne. Like I get a lot of these reactions too in Japan. Uh, so, yeah. you know, you are, people automatically assume that you are somehow, uh, you know, like smart or, uh, you know, hard worker or, you know, um, I think it in, in psychology, be, the, it's called the halo the... effect, but like people make an assumption about you, right? Yes. So yes. Um, like, uh, when I was applying to some masters, I got uh, an offer from a very famous university. If I had, you know, went to that university and if I had graduated, maybe people would have said, oh, you went to this school, you must be really smart. But again, like, I'm not really smart. Like, I'm like average. So going to like these very smart, like very fa- famous schools doesn't really prove anything. It just means that you, again, like you were good you have a high GPA, you have a high GMAT or standard test scores. Uh, and you, I don't know, in the case of maybe, maybe you got a very good recommendation letters. That's it. Like, you know, it doesn't really uh, mean let's, let's say for a moment that you got into both Columbia mm-hmm. and I don't know, Syracuse or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, I don't know, but okay. And, and you said, okay, I'm equally smart. And I went, go to Syracuse because I like that they have whatever facilities or something that's not very smart because at, you have to remember that these elite schools they provide an alumni network yeah. there's yeah. the prestige the, yeah. the top professors go there um so so there's a plenty of reasons to 
choose this school. But like, it's all about kind of branding, right? The name. But I do think that those types of schools do make you kind of, even if they're, they're like a, a high speed elevator to the top because they're connecting you with top industry people from the beginning. Right. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, there's, there's certainly value in that. I think this is a difference in in the way that, you know, I had this discussion in Paris. The mm-hmm. French look at education as a right. Americans mm-hmm. look at education as an investment. Mm-hmm. So that's why American schools are really expensive. Right. They're a big investment. But on the other hand, you know, all, my job search and, and, and the people I'm connected with come from my American school. So Bone doesn't help you know, so no. Bone provides a class and that's it. You know, there is no alumni or extracurricular or career services or anything like that. Um, so, on, you know, I'm okay actually with, with, because the value of a Harvard degree is still so high. They have to make it really difficult. But, but to get you in are saying that the value of Harvard or Columbia or those good schools comes not it's from their education, science. not from their yeah. education, but from, you know, like peripheral other, you know, something that comes as extra, like alumni network or a brand yeah. or you know, career service. Like that doesn't like relate to what you learn at Harvard. So you're essentially saying that what you learn at Harvard matters less than the brand of Harvard or uh, alumni network at Harvard. Like, but, but like at that point, like, like there is no point in like going to Harvard. You just like want to have the, the fact that you have gone to Harvard. You know what I mean? I mean, yes, I kind of agree with that because, you know, we at, at, our, at our school, we studied mostly studies based in the U.S. And that's probably what economics programs all across the U.S. are studying. But they paid $50,000 a year to go there. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, does the education really matter? Maybe not. But, you know, you are getting top professors. And I guess it's, it's, it's up to the individual. Do you perceive it as worth it? You know, but like, you know, um, just because you know those those top professors doesn't mean that like they're good at teaching. Um, I um, I hope my uh, 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 you know bachelor's professor isn't listening to this. I mean he's not listening to this, but you know some of my professors were top economists from Japan who went to MIT, who went to Yale, and who went to like all these places, right? Um, yeah. Like they weren't necessarily good at teaching. Right, but who did you go to to write your recommendation letter? Those professors, because again, like exactly, it's the brand. It's the brand. The it's the brand. It's the brand. Yes, the so, brand is valuable. That's why marketing is such a large industry. But again, like if you're just looking at brand, then you don't have to like you know necessarily associate that with the school because you know like you can maybe have like a elite elitist club where you can make the alumni network or you can make you know um um i don't know like uh, recommendation letters or something and you know some some people do what those are country clubs (laughs) okay golf tournaments yeah exactly (laughs) you can have a golf tournament instead of harvard but okay i want to talk about the the legal industry because i think you know again like this is really extreme um, so most Supreme Court justices are from select few of, you know, um, schools. 
like, is there a reason, Alec, that like uh, eight out of nine Supreme Court justices, again, I, I, actually before Amy Coney Barrett, uh, all Supreme Court justices had gone to Harvard or Yale. Like, is there a reason that Supreme Court justice has to go to Harvard or Yale? No, probably not. And I think people would have more problem with it if it produced a political sway. Uh, but I don't believe it is, right? I don't believe that, uh, you know, like the Supreme Court bench today, mm-hmm. you know, Harvard, is, these uh, upper level schools are, are, well, many of them are, are very liberally thinking and, and that doesn't seem to play out in, in politics, right? Well, because like they select the most conservative students, you know, and like they, they, they select the most conservative judges who went to Harvard and Yale, right? Well, yeah. I mean... I- I mean, like there, there are like conservative people who go to top schools, right? Um, again, like Donald Trump, may I remind you, went to an Ivy League school. <laughs> true, very true. Um, but, but like, I want to like think a bit about this kind of extreme elitism and how it affects, um, you know, the decision these people make both, both on like legal grounds and like personal grounds. So, you know, like, um, there are like multiple movies about uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who yeah. apparently was very smart, who went to Cornell, who went to Harvard, who went to Columbia. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she was kind of idealized. Right. Right. You know, there are people wearing, like, having Ruth Bader Ginsburg tattoos, you know, t shirts. Yeah. And, like, it's weird because. At the end of the day, she's just a Supreme Court justice, and a normal person shouldn't know the name of the Supreme Court justice. Because does does um, but but does going to an elite Ivy League school mm-hmm. uh, mean that you cannot identify with uh, another portion of of the population? Not necessary, but probably makes it a lot harder. A lot harder. Okay. Right. I mean, I don't know. I, I but, really but, think brand and perception played a big deal here, right? Because as you said, there are good law schools all across the country. But again, like like the brand perception, again, like especially at the legal level, you know, especially at, when making constitutional decisions, the brand perception shouldn't play any role. And like if you went to like Chicago Law School or New York University Law School or University of Virginia Law School, you are probably just as smart as those who went to Harvard or Yale, right? It's you may have. It's like a it's like a cycle. So let's say a Harvard Harvard graduate is perceived to be the best, gets in a top law position. He then goes on to do great things, and people think, "Wow, Harvard graduates, they're right. great. Let's go hire some more." Right. And they do they do more stuff, and then suddenly they have an alumni network with all sorts of people in high up positions. And those people think, well, I should hire some more students from my alma mater and they, they get hired yeah. again. And, 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 and that's, so that's it's like a repeating cycle. Yeah. But like that, that's stupid. Right. Um, and like, like I, I, I would think again, like Harvard and Yale are both a Northeastern schools, uh, you know, that have a long history, but maybe on something like environmental regulation or something like oil rights, maybe someone who was born and raised in Al- Al- Alaska and went to Alaska University 
maybe has a very you know good opinion about these say uh tops topics about like oil wells and stuff because you know alaska produces a lot of oil maybe on issues like you know native american uh, indigenous uh rights and you know some some state treaties or something maybe a justice who went to oklahoma or i don't know new mexico or somewhere where there's a lot of native american reservations uh and tribes maybe are better equipped at making those decisions well then they should become senators or uh, but like on, of, on legal on, on constitutional issues on constitutional issues right well because senators can can has... can make constitutional decisions that's true and, and the supreme court has been uh politicized recently but they're supposed to supposed to um just do a very academic job of of interpreting um yeah but like what like what and, what's the reason why someone who went to um i don't know new york university law school can't be a supreme supreme court justice while harvard and yale graduates can i don't know somebody just has to earn the spot and then improve <laughs> the prestige of the school and they'll, they'll like uh, i think it's so ridiculous um, i'm sorry and you know like it, again like it like these people who have been like told like their geniuses their whole entire lives like they have i think have a very weird perception about themselves like you know this is true with um ruth bader ginsburg uh but like there are multiple su supreme court justices who are in their 80s and who don't retire because they think their opinions are so important but at the end of the day, what they well, do is a, like, that's a specific case of the Supreme Court because they serve for life. <laughs> um, yeah, well, other so that other, may need to be revisited because right? in colonial times, people didn't live that long. No, <laughs> and, and like again, like if like if you are eighty four, and you know, like I'm sorry, maybe maybe you think you're just as sharp as you graduated from top at Harvard, but if you're at the age of eighty four, you probably aren't. You probably are not. Um, but again, like again, like these, these implications about having you know less representation, um, I think perhaps matters. You know, like when when I think Kamala Harris became vice president, you know, there was a lot of talk about first you know, black woman vice president, you know, first Asian uh, Indian woman vice president, but you know, who went to like um, what historically uh, black uh, college and universities, right? Mm -hmm. And probably at those schools she had a very unique experience as a black person in america right yeah um shouldn't those voices be heard at like the nation's top court so what i'm saying is like maybe someone who you know like um went to a community college transferred to a state school and went to you know uh went to law school and became a public defender, maybe per someone like that's voice is really important in these Supreme Court, in cases that Supreme Court handles. So I want to talk a oh, bit. I agree with you. They're just going to have to try really, really hard to get themselves uh, heard and, and to an elite level, right? Yeah, but like, you know, if, if people who are making the decision are all Harvard graduates or Yale graduates or those Ivy League graduates, they will only look at people who have the sim similar backgrounds because 
people are biased to look at someone who looked like them, some, you know, someone who have similar background as them, someone who has a similar story as them. Um, I want to actually like talk about the case of the Japan because you know I've mentioned about the British Supreme Court, the Jap the American Supreme Court, the French Supreme Court. Weirdly, Japanese Supreme Court has more diversity in terms of their academic and also legal career. So Jap uh, the Japanese Supreme Court as a tradition sits a quota that certain percentage comes from uh, legal academia, so law professors, certain percentage come from prosecutors, and certain percentage comes from uh, defenders, defense attorneys. Yeah. And we have a lot of schools uh, represented, um, not just the top university in Japan, but, you know, um, universities that are in, let's say, a top, you know, like a very premier league, but not necessarily the top of the top, also represented at the Supreme Court level. And I think that's, you know, that makes things more interesting. And I, I don't think the Japanese Supreme Court justices are dumber because of it. No, certainly not. Um, yeah, I would be for that. All right. I mean, I assume that when they, they're looking for candidates, they consider, you know, say when a president has to fill a new seat, I'm sure that they consider people from um, people from uh, various schools and various backgrounds. But but at the end of the day, that position, just like any position, is is somewhat of a popularity contest. It's yeah. it's showing your CV and see who has the best resume. So but like, you know. but like I, I challenge you and listeners to look at the, the, the resume of the Supreme Court. They look exactly the same. The same they went to yeah. top law school. They clerked for top justices or judges. Uh, they, they, they worked for the federal court and, you know, they became the federal judge, you know, circuit court judge. Like they have the exact same resume. And like, if you switch the schools or careers or jobs, like you wouldn't be able to tell because they're that similar. And that's fucking weird. Did I say effort? Uh. <laughs> it's all right. Um, so, yeah, I, I I agree with that. But but do I see that changing anytime soon? I think probably not. Okay, probably not because we we perceive that as to be the best judge, and yeah. so that's what's that's yeah. what we want represented on our court. Yeah. But but you know again like I think you know I think people should look beyond these top of the top schools because there are a lot of smart people out there who didn't go to Harvard uh, but you know still have really good ideas so I think you know I think it's a good place to sum up the podcast the conclusion is that destroy Harvard <laughs> we'll do okay. Okay, uh, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you have any opinions, if you need feedback, uh, please uh, send an email. And we have a Gmail account, our podabroad at gmail.com. Uh, you can send the feedback there, and I think we will read them. Um, so thank you, and uh, share this with your friends and family, and uh, see you in the next episode.